If you have a Bible tonight, would you open to the book of Galatians in chapter number 6? The book of Galatians tonight in chapter number 6. I want to take as my text Galatians chapter 6 verses 14 to 16. Galatians chapter number 6 tonight verses 14 to 16. God's Word says, beginning in verse 14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. You know, I believe that by simple observation, one can clearly see that our present world is in a state of great confusion. If you put your ear to the ground and listen to the culture, you'll often hear the refrain over and over again, What is truth? I think great confusion abounds as it concerns the great questions of life, questions that everybody has, questions about origin and meaning and purpose and destiny. Those great questions about where did we come from and what's the meaning of life and what's the purpose of my life? What am I supposed to be doing in my time on this planet? And then destiny, where am I going to go after I die? Again, people want to know what's right and what's true and, and what's beautiful, what's real, what's solid. What's the proper worldview and course of action that's going to lead me to a position of peace and Joy and contentment and happiness and satisfaction. People all the time are saying things like, I'm confused about life and I don't know what to do. It's just an absolute state of confusion. Now, with a little further exploration, if you'll just go on a little further, you'll begin to see the result of all of this confusion. Because people don't know the way and because they don't know how to live and because they have so many unanswered questions in their life and no compass by which to chart their course, there are many problems that come from that position. We look around the world and we see an experience of chaos, don't we? And we see broken lives everywhere. I mean, I'm sure tonight, even in this room, if we were to go around the room, there's many here could, could give plenty of testimony about brokenness that you've experienced in life and the great pain that comes from that. And for many people, it's so bad in their life that they're led to an absolute position of despair. I mean, even I read just a moment ago in that testimony about thoughts of suicide and ending it all and being done with it and how many people have come to that position in their life. Now, from here, the follow-up question to that is always, why? I mean, we want to diagnose certain things, and so a measure of diagnostic curiosity leads a person to ask, why is this world the way that it is? I mean, why are things as they are? Why, why all of the chaos? Why all of the confusion? Why are all of these things this way? Well, in a quest for answers to that, for an explanation to that particular question, there are no shortages of potential answers for that. I mean, you can look around in the world and we add to all of the confusion with the whole host of voices that are in competition with one another, saying that this is the way and this over here, this is the path you need to take. And so there's this difficulty that's uh, added to the situation 
Because from every single corner in the marketplace of ideas, we hear that statement. Here's the answer. I know the way. Follow me. Listen to me. Of course, there is that, uh, there's the secular voice of humanism. We have that voice that speaks out in the culture. And of course, uh, that particular voice stands on its three pillars of education and economics and politics. If we just had a little bit better education, if we had a little more knowledge about things, we could lift ourselves up out of all of the mess that's all around us and life would be better and things would be in a a better position and a better trajectory and all would go well. So it's knowledge that we need. And then another pillar in secular humanism, no, well, we we need the education, but we also need the economics. If we just had more money, you know, money fixes things. So if we could just add more money to our lives, we could raise people up out of their poverty and out of poor conditions and life would get better for everyone. And then, of course, politics, power, knowledge, money, and power, the big three of secular humanism, Mankind, if he just had more power, if there could be more men in control, and if we could just work things out through the political spectrum, then we could make things in this world so much better. And there, so there's the voice of secular humanism. They have their philosophies. They have their pillars. And then, of course, there's the other voice of the, the non-Christian religions in the world, that religious voice that comes in the world that says, well, the problem for you and all of your troubles is just you're, you're just not being good enough, and so you need to be better. You need to try to be a good person, and you need to, you know, maybe go to the bookstore and get you a self-improvement book and take a few lessons and learn how to clean your life up a little bit with some self-improvement. Maybe some leadership books in your life would be a great help for you. You just need to start performing a little better and maybe reform your life just a little bit. Pull it together. Tap into your inner spirituality. Get in tune with the earth. Make sure that you're serving all of the would-be deities that are out there that may exist in the world and things would get better for your life. So there's a voice. And then, of course, you have the voice of Christianity. And that is the voice that's revealed in the Bible, the the revealed answers that come from God. That's what the Bible claims, by the way. When you hold up the, the pages of Scripture, when you go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it's a testimony. It claims to be a testimony from God that says, here's the answer to the problems. And so we have that voice. We have the voice of the biblical worldview or we could call the God-fearing worldview. Now, now I just want to say here, I, I am a Christian preacher. I, I'm a preacher of the gospel. I'm a gospel minister. And so my presupposition and my proposition that I want to make to you based upon these different voices is this statement. And I'm not going to try to defend it. I'm just going to announce it. And I'm going to say that this is the true position. And that is that only Christianity provides the proper answer to the questions. Only Christianity's voice is true. And all of the other possible positions are bankrupt and they provide absolutely no solutions. You say, well, preacher, that's awful, awfully bold. Well, you, you need to read the book and you'll come to see the same thing in time, my friend. All of these other positions lead nowhere. And by the way, the Bible even weighs in on that. It talks about that. There's a couple of very important passages in my own life and maybe these have rung home to you and yours as well. In Psalm 107, just listen to a few of these words from this psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for His good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 
whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. And then it begins to talk about some of these redeemed people and where they came from and the particular troubles that they were in in their lives. And it says some of these people, they wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from all of their distress. And he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Here are these people that are wandering around in the wilderness. They're looking for a city. They're looking for satisfaction. They're looking for resources. They're looking for answers. And they're wandering around in a desert waste. And then here comes God Almighty finding them in their travels and brings them to the position of resource and and joy and satisfaction. There's another passage that's been helpful to me in my life. It's Proverbs chapter 30. And here you have the testimony of a man by the name of Agur. And Agur, he speaks, and the situation in Proverbs 30, it's almost as if he's a teacher, and he has a couple of students. And at least in my Bible, there's a footnote about these students. It talks about Agur, this man declares to Ithiel and Eucal. And so he's taking the position of a teacher, and he has a couple of students, and he's going to instruct them in the ways of life. And it seems as if Agur, at one time in his life, he had tried the path of secular humanism. He had tried the path of just sort of figuring things out on his own. And here he gives a testimony to these men. He says, the man declares, I'm weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. I think Edgar is saying, you know, I tried it my own way. I tried to go the path that my own reasoning led me to. And I came to the place where I was weary and worn out. I came to the place where I was too stupid to be a man. I I devolved to to a beast-like state by trying to go that path. And then finally, as he talks to these men, when you come to verse 5, here's his analysis. Here's his solution to the problem. Every word of God proves true. And He's a shield to those who take refuge. Don't add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. Isn't that amazing? So the Bible itself, it claims that everything outside of the Christian position puts a person on a journey that leads to absolute despair in their life. Now, if we take this one step further, we also have to recognize the fact that even in Christianity, the overall voice is not in unison. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that among professing Christians, the voice is not in unison? There are contradictory voices that all say they belong to Christianity, but they're saying different things and they're not in agreement. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that this one group over here has the label of Christian? And then here's another group over here that has the label of Christian and another over here and another over there. And you begin to listen to their message and wait a minute, it's, they're all saying that they're Christian but they're saying something different. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem as if their voice is agreeing with one another. They have different voices. They all have the same face or the same label but they're saying quite different things. 
You know, this should really be no surprise to us. Matter of fact, we go back to the Scripture again. If we were to go back to the Old Testament in the time of the prophets and the time of the nation of Israel and their downfall, do you remember what happened when the nation of Israel was about to go into captivity by the Babylonian captivity? Here you have prophets like Jeremiah that are rising up and are saying, what's going to happen? You're, you're going to go into captivity. This isn't going to go well. This is you, You've sinned. You've broken the law. The cup of wrath is, has filled up. The discipline of God is upon you. And you're going into captivity. And then there's another group of, of so-called prophets that claim to speak for God. And they're saying a different message. They're saying, oh, don't worry about all of that. Jeremiah, he's an extremist. And you don't need to listen to him. And everything's going to be just fine for you. Both groups claim to speak for God. And so God comes to these false prophets. And He says, you just go ahead and prophesy your little dreams and your little subjective revelation. And you go ahead and just say those things. But let the man who has my word go ahead and speak my word. And then we have these great statements from the prophets that say, And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Jeremiah begins to speak the truth of God. This isn't anything new. People that have professed to belong to God oftentimes have contrary messages. Both claim to speak for God. Both claim to represent Him. But my friend, only one can be true. Don't we find this in great abundance today? You turn on the television, you look at the TV preachers, you get on YouTube and you just start typing in all of the different groups that have the face of Christianity. And oh my friend, the voices are so different out there. What a mess. What a confusion. Further confusion to the whole deal. Now, since that's the reality, we have to ask the question that naturally follows. So let me state it for you in a number of ways. Here's the question. If that's the case, what version of Christianity can I boast in? Or maybe I could say it this way. Which one should I believe? When can I confidently say that I have found the authentic and the genuine thing. When is it that I could come to the place where I, have, I can say that I've truly encountered it? What do I need to know to be sure that I have what God actually revealed? What's the chief distinctive that lets me know that I've properly understood Christianity and that I've rightly experienced it? How do I know that I know what God actually wants me to know? Those are good questions, aren't they? How can I keep from being deceived? I mean, since all of these voices of Christianity obviously can't be true, how can I escape the error of the counterfeit voice? What's the main thing? What are the grounds by which I can have confidence in the genuine revelation from God? Oh, my friend, for our benefit, the Apostle Paul answers these questions right here in our text. And I want you to see the answer. I want you to notice again verse number 14. And look at what Paul says. Here's the great apostle. And by the way, if you read the other apostles, their testimony rings true with his. So here's what Paul says so that you understand exactly the meaning and the message of the Bible. Paul says there in verse number 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul says that he makes his boast in the cross. And to boast in something means that you see that particular thing or you hold that particular thing as supreme. 
As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul even uses the word accept. By using that word, he's saying that nothing else even comes close to the value of the cross. In religion, nothing else is even worth talking about from the position of the Apostle Paul. To Paul and to the other apostles, you can't even begin to consider Christianity unless you bring the cross front and center because it's the cross that is the main thing. Listen to me. Any message that claims to be Christian but does not hold up the cross as supreme is not Christianity. It's a counterfeit. It's a phony. It's an imposter. And by the way, let me just say to you, when you read the apostles' words, the apostles not just talking about this Roman act of crucifixion in general. No, no, no. The apostle Paul ties this particular cross that he's talking about to a very specific one. The apostle Paul tells us here in this verse that it's the cross of Jesus Christ that he boasts in. In other words, the Apostle Paul's attention is drawn to a particular man. And that's the thing that he glories in. For Paul, the cross of Jesus Christ is Christianity. And you do not have Christianity or the message of Christianity without the cross of Jesus. Christianity is about Jesus. Paul says, this is what I boast in. And furthermore, when you see it, and when you understand it for what it truly is... You glory in it. It's something that becomes the main thing to you. Like Paul, when you come to see the cross as Paul saw the cross, it's the thing that you glory in. It it, it consumes your life. And so we have to ask the question, what's the big deal then about the cross? I mean, what's so special about the cross? Why is it so fundamental and central to the apostle and to the message of Christianity? I mean, why is Paul so excited about this thing? Well, I want you to see here in the next place that Paul explains to us why it's so important. Why is it so vitally important? Why is it that he boasts in it as he does? Well, he tells us right here, he boasts in it because the cross is what severed his connection that he had to the world. Do you notice that right there in the text? Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gives some explanation. He says, this is why it's so important Because the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says that the cross delivered him from the world. And it made the effect of the world upon him inoperable. Paul Paul speaks here. Isn't this amazing? It's this violent language that he uses. It's It's the language of crucifixion. It's the language of death. Paul is using the language of death. He wants us to understand that in his life, from his own personal experience and testimony, that he and the world had a parting of ways because of the cross. He encountered this cross and it changed everything in his life. And so Paul can say because of this crucifixion that the world is dead to him and now he is dead to the world because of the cross. And again, more questions we have to consider as we think about what Paul's saying here. What does Paul mean by the world? I mean, what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Paul's claim? Why should we even consider this? Who cares, Paul, that, that, you, that you've been crucified to the world? So what? Good for you. Woohoo! What's the big deal about this? Why does it matter so much that Paul would say that he's been delivered from the world? Why is it you could even ask the question, why is he so happy about this? Did you, did you hear a little bit of happiness tonight in the testimonies in the yeah, baptismal pool? Amen. Did you hear things in the baptismal pool about the cross and about Jesus? 
Did you see the tears flow as the testimonies came? Well, this happiness about the cross. What's the big deal here, Paul? Why should we even give this any consideration at all? What do you mean? Well, we need to understand what he means by the world. Now, when we think about this idea of the world, Paul is not talking about the physical world in the sense of the planet, this terrestrial ball that we are, are living on. That's not what Paul has on his mind. But rather, Paul is talking about the way of life that's carried out by mankind in this physical world or on this planet in which we live. I guess you could say that a definition of the world from the perspective of the Apostle Paul is the outlook of the world. It's, it's a particular point of view. It's a particular type of thinking. It's a particular type of behavior that goes on in the world. It has its own philosophies. It has its own entertainments. It has its own way of thinking, its own point of view. And of course, by Paul's understanding of Scripture and by his own personal experience, he understood that this outlook... And the point of view that he's been crucified from is a point of view that is absolutely governed by sin. Paul understood the story of the Bible. You know, you go back to the very beginning pages of sacred scripture and you look in the garden. We learn there that dominion of this world was originally given to man. And we see that Satan came into the garden and he began to speak to man. And he usurped that dominion, didn't he? He tricked, he deceived man and ended up taking that dominion from man. And because of that, man fell. Man fell into a horrible state in sin that we're, we're still suffering from in this world. And, and so now, by nature, all men are, are, are part of this fallen, sinful world. Do you understand that when you were born into this world, the Scripture speaks that that you're a son of Adam, that you're born a sinner. You sin in your life because fundamentally at the core, by nature, you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Because you're part of and born into this fallen sinful world. Paul understood this. And you see the outlook of man in the world is that as soon as he's able, he willingly casts in his lot with the rest of the world as soon as he is able. And he begins his sinful course of life. And so the character then of this world is sinful. And in that sin, one of the chief marks of that sinfulness is that this world is in absolute rebellion against God. And haven't you seen that for yourself? I mean, just think about the attitude of mankind. If you, by the way, if you've never experienced the cross like these people tonight and like the Apostle Paul, is, doesn't this describe you perfectly? That you're at the center of your life and not God? <laughs> you don't give Him the time of day. You'd rather just forget all about Him. You suppress the truth about Him. As a matter of fact, there's probably many of you that are here right now tapping your watch saying, when's this guy going to be over so I can go and eat my cheeseburger? I'm ready to go. Because you don't care about God. The Bible says that the carnal man, the, the fallen man, the fleshly man, he is in rebellion or hostility towards God. And that is the disposition of the world. Man doesn't include God in his thoughts, in his thinking, in his planning. Doesn't care anything about God. He'd just assume God die. He'd just assume kill God. 
Man wants to govern his own life. He doesn't want to be governed by God. He encounters the blessed book of God and he says, well, I don't have anything to do with that. I don't want to read that. Uh, that, that's not, I don't want to be bound by that. I don't want to be under that. I don't want to be a slave to this God of the Bible. I don't have anything to do with Him. And so there's the suppression of the truth about God. And anytime thoughts of God come into the mind, and anytime there's any pressure upon a person's behavior, and somebody comes along, a preacher comes along and says, Hey, you ought not be doing that because God's Word says. Here's an authority, and man doesn't like that authority. Man says, I'm going to be the captain of my own fate, I'm going to man this ship. I don't want God in charge. I don't want to have anything to do with this God. I want to live my own life. I don't want to be governed by Him. Now, haven't you seen that? Haven't you seen that in the world? You turn on the nightly news at night. You don't hear discussions on the television about God. You don't hear people talking about the most marvelous thing in the world, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't hear that. Because it's not in the thinking of the man of the world, is it? You see, everybody's cast their lot into this rebellion against God. Furthermore, we could go passage after passage in the Bible and look more at the character of this. But if you just think of a, a text in 1 John where the Apostle John is talking about the fact that man in his sinfulness in the world is governed by desires and lusts and pride. And by the way, isn't, isn't this amazing? This is just, if you think about this for a minute, this is staggering. Even the reason of man is not powerful enough to overcome desire and lust. You, you think about a man in the world. You think about this man. And he's dominated, let's say. We heard some testimonies tonight about alcohol. And this man just sucks down the bottle. And he's a drunkard in his life. And he's got a wife and family. He's got little children that depend upon him. He's got to go to work and he's got to make money and he's got to do things to provide for his family. But yet he loves the bottle. He loves the drink. He loves to hold fast to that. And he knows. He's been down the road long enough. He's had enough friends that he's seen drink and drive and have crashes and end up in the hospital and die perhaps even. He knows the horrible nature of the hangovers and the stupidity that he engages in when he gets drunk. And he knows that it's going to cost him. He knows he's going to spend the grocery money. He knows that things are not going to go well if he gets drunk. He knows his kids aren't going to get the shoes that they need. And that he's going to come home and he's going to scream at his wife and beat the kids and kick the dog and slam the cat against the wall, whatever else a drunk man does. And he knows that in his reason and in his thinking, but yet the lusts of the flesh give in anyway and he goes on to the bottle. Amen. Now does that make any sense at all to you? He's in bondage to these things. He loves his sin. He's gripped by these things in his life. And he can't get free of it. He's governed by that. And the pride of life and all the rest. The Apostle Paul in another place, in that mighty epistle to the Romans in chapter 8, he talks about the man of the world, how he sets his mind on the fleshly or the worldly realm. He's not interested in the realm where God dwells, in the spiritual realm. He just lives this horizontal kind of life, not a vertical kind of life. Everything's about the here and now and the temporal circumstances. And so what does he care about? What does he think about? Well, he's not thinking about God. 
He's thinking about his own selfish ends. He's thinking about making money. He's thinking about gratification of, of pleasures and desires and comforts. And he thinks money's going to solve that. He thinks time off from work is going to solve that. He thinks this is going to solve it and that's going to solve it. And he fills his life with all of this stuff, trying to find satisfaction in this worldly, fleshly realm. That's where he lives. That's his life. You can look at his checkbook. You can look at his time. You look at how he talks, the things that interest him, and what do you find? You find that he's living on this plane. Something else about all of this that's staggering, the Bible tells us that this position of being in the world, this whole position will be judged by God. And unless a man is delivered out of that situation, he's going to perish in that judgment. And so here's the great Apostle Paul. And he says, I boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why, Paul? Because it was the cross that delivered me from all that mess. It was the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that severed that particular connection. And so now, what else can I do except make my boast in this man who went on that tree? The cross is everything to me, Paul says. Now, perhaps you hear that and you want to press upon the apostle and say, well, how does the cross do that, Paul? You say that the cross did all this for you. How does it do it? Uh, let me give you three observations about that tonight. In the first place, when we study the Bible, we see that the cross overcame the one who had men bound in slavery to this world. You know, the Bible teaches us, here's one text in particular, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Satan... The devil himself, the Bible says, is the God or the governor of this world. He is the usurper, and so he is the governor of fallen mankind. They are in his kingdom. They are in his sway under his power. And the story of the Bible goes on to teach us that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and He went to the cross as the second Adam. Adam messed everything up and so Jesus comes into the world as the second Adam to rescue mankind from the horrible plight that the first Adam put man in. And so Paul says in Colossians chapter number 2, speaking about this, he's talking to Christians, he's talking to people like, like Paul who've experienced this and he says, "In you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Listen to this. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Amen. Rulers, authorities, the powers that are controlled in this world by Satan himself. The Bible says that Jesus spoiled all of that and put Satan to open shame. And so then Paul could say again in Colossians that the cross delivers men from that worldly kingdom of darkness. He's again talking to Christians and he says, Hey, you need to give thanks to the Father. Why? Because He's done something for you. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and has transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Oh, my friend, that's a big deal. Because in the kingdom of darkness, in the kingdom of Satan, you're in bondage to that particular realm. And the glory of the cross and the reason that Paul boasts is because the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and He overcame the strong man who, who had us bound in sin. He made a mockery of them when He went to the cross to lay His life down. Another thing. 
Another reason here that Paul would say these things and how the cross would do this is the, the cross satisfied, listen carefully, the cross satisfied our situation concerning God, meaning the one who we offended. You see, Jesus, when He came into the world, He dealt with the crimes that we committed against God while living under the sway of this world. Here's Jesus coming into the world, going to the cross, accomplishing all of these amazing things. Satan had taken dominion and he had, he had ruled over fallen men. But when Satan usurped that rule, it didn't mean that the law of God still was not binding upon men. See, God has a law. God has commands upon humanity. He has a moral law. There are some shout nots and some shouts in the Bible, some things you ought not do and things that you are to do. You're not supposed to lie and steal and commit adultery. You're not supposed to murder. You're supposed to give God glory with your life above anything else. And it only takes just a few moments when you gaze upon that moral law to recognize the fact that you haven't done that perfectly in your life. You have lied. You have stolen. You have not lived and made all of your choices in this world for the glory of God. And God's going to hold you accountable for that because He's got a law. He's a king and He's got a kingdom and He's got a law. And you're accountable to the law. And you've blown it. And I've blown it. And we have a debt before God. Crimes against Him that have to come to justice. So here's the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world. And what does He do? Well, my friend, Jesus didn't come into the world just to give us the Sermon on the Mount so that we would have some good principles to live our life by. Jesus didn't come into this world just to live a good life, to be a model and an example for you so that you could get along a little better in life. Oh no, my friend, the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world as a man to go to the cross and lay His life down as a sacrifice for sinners. Jesus came into the world to make atonement for our crimes against God. How could you ever be set free? How could you ever get out of the debt that you owed to God? How could you ever have your criminal rap sheet covered over and made white as snow as if it had never happened before? How could you do that yourself? The message of the Bible is that's a bankrupt position. You can't. And so here's Jesus coming into the world and the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he puts it this way as he talks about Jesus and talks about what he did. God put Him forward. God publicly sent Jesus forward. When He put Jesus forward on the cross, God was making a public statement to the world. He put Him forth, the Bible says, to be a propitiation by His blood. And this is to be received by faith. Listen, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in His, in God's divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. You know, when you go to the Old Testament and you look at men like Abraham and Moses and David, you learn about those men that they were forgiven men. They were men who knew God. But the question is, how in the world could God forgive them? How could God who is holy and righteous and just and pure and cannot even look upon sin, how can God look at men like that and say, you can go free? You see, if God did that without a basis of doing that, then God Himself would be a corrupt judge. You wouldn't think much of a judge who had to rule on a case of somebody that had murdered one of your family members. 
And the judge comes down and looks at the criminal. All the evidence is in. And he looks at the criminal and he says, Hey, I know you did this, but I kind of like you. I think I'm going to let you go free. You would say, Oh, no, there, there, this has been a, a gross injustice. Justice has not been served. Oh, my friend, how can a holy God forgive sin, which the Bible says He does, without compromising His holy character, which the Bible says He won't? And it's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that satisfies and settles and fixes that dilemma. Have you ever thought of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ solved the greatest dilemma that has ever existed in the world? That dilemma is how can a holy God forgive a wicked sinner like you and like me? Paul goes on to tell us how that happened. God put Jesus on that cross to make a public declaration to the whole world that He doesn't just forgive people arbitrarily. That there's a basis for that forgiveness. It was to show His righteousness. So at the present time, God, through Christ's work on the cross, would be just and the justifier of the one who believes in that cross. In other words, Jesus marches up to that cross and the wrath of God and the condemnation that's meant to be poured out upon sinners is poured out in full measure upon the perfect one who did not deserve it so that the justice of God would be satisfied so that then God could turn around and look at people like you and people like me and forgive you without compromising His character. Is that not amazing? That there's an actual basis of forgiveness that God doesn't just arbitrarily say, oh, you're forgiven. Oh no, it came at a great price. He had to crush His Son on that tree. So Jesus marches up to that cross and fixes this great dilemma so that God can give you forgiveness and so that God's justice can be upheld. That's how the cross delivers us from the world and the effects of our time in it. A third thing here too, I think this is also an amazing truth, and that is that the cross banished or displaced the old natural affections that we had for our home country, the world. And in its place, put new affections that secured our loyalty to a new realm. You see, back a moment ago I read to you from Colossians where Paul talked about Christians are those persons who have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and have been brought into the kingdom of His dear Son. What is it that God does to keep those people in that new realm so that they don't go back to the old one? Well, He removes old affections that you had for the things of the world. And He doesn't just leave you without any affections at all. He supplies new objects for your affections. New things, wonderful things that grip your heart more than all of the old things that you used to do. Like the lying and the cheating and the fornicating and the drinking and the drugs and all of the other things that you are filling up your life with. In the book of Titus, in chapter number 2, it talks about the grace of God appearing. And when someone experiences the grace of God, what it does is it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then it turns right around and teaches us how to live upright, self-controlled, godly lives in this present age. The Apostle Peter, in his epistle, he's talking about Christians... People who are now Christians, he's dwelling on their past life. And he says about them, look, the time in the past is sufficient for doing what Gentiles or pagans do. 
living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You see, that's the man of the world. That's what he does in the realm of the world. That's how he lives. And Peter's reasoning with the Christian and he says, hasn't there been enough of that in your life from the past? And then he goes on to say, with this, with respect to this, they're surprised. The man of the world who's still in the world, he's surprised when you don't join in in the same flood of debauchery or sinfulness and they make fun of you or malign you. You see, the man of the world who's still in the world, he hasn't experienced the cross. He looks at a Christian like some of you. And you're living upright lives and you're loving the Lord Jesus and you're boasting like the Apostle Paul in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. They say, what's the matter with you, man? Why are you going to the prayer meeting on Friday night? we got a party to go to over here. What's the big deal with you? Why, why the prayer meeting? Why all the church services? I mean, that's fine. You, you said a little prayer and put everything right with God. Why do, why do you have to be so busy about these things now and in religion and all? Why, why can't we just go do all the stuff that we've always done? You say, I can't do that anymore. I don't have affections for that anymore. My life has been changed. And they respond. They say, well, you're a moron. You just go on. And I'm going to do my thing. Isn't that exactly how it works? The Apostle John, again, in his epistle, 1 John, in chapter number 4, again talking to Christians, he says, Little children, you're from God, and you have overcome the world, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I have new affections for things that are outside of that realm of darkness and sinfulness, he says. In the same book, in chapter number 5, verse number 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There's that man again. There's that man that I'm boasting in again. The Son of God, knowing Him, looking to His cross is the thing that sets me free and delivers me and gives me power over the grip of the world that I was born into naturally. And so here's the Apostle Paul. He comes to this position when he, he says, I boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because it delivered me from the world when nothing else could deliver me from the world. There wasn't anything else that could get the job done. And so Paul says, I am boasting in this one particular central thing. And as he started the letter to the Galatians, he actually says the same thing in a spirit of doxology and praise to God. Grace to you, he says to the Galatians, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I can't help but praise God for delivering me from that life of sin in the world. That's the apostle's perspective. The, the cross defeated the enemy of our soul. It broke His binding power. The, 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 the cross is the thing that forgives men of their sin and their transgression of the law of God. It's the cross that reconciles men to God. And because of the cross, hearts are changed and they're transformed. And it keeps those persons who have experienced it from going back into the world. This is why Paul boasts. Oh, I boast only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, Paul says that's true Christianity. When you look at all of the different voices of Christianity, when you hear that message, you found the right thing. Amen. Amen. That's the criteria 
What does this person who's teaching think about the cross of the Lord Jesus? Do they stand with the Apostle Paul in their proclamation, in their preaching, or do they have something else that's the focus out there? You see, it's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, listen, I want to ask you a question. When you think about what Paul's saying here, and you examine your own life, can you say as you sit in the pew tonight that you boast in the cross as the apostle does? Is the disposition of your heart and your soul like that of the great apostle? Have you understood the cross in this way? Have you thought of the cross from the perspective of which I'm giving it to you tonight? Is, is this, maybe I could ask it this way, is this your understanding of Christianity? This is Paul's understanding. This is the apostle. I boast in the cross. Look, let me, let me quickly show you just a couple of more things before we conclude. Look there in verse number 15 if you still have your Bible open. I want you to see that Paul, after talking about the cross, Paul then issues somewhat of a warning, we could say. And it's a warning concerning impotent religion, meaning the kind of religion that only shows up in externals. Now, now look at this. Look at the, right after Paul is saying, I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. And then in verse number 15, he makes this statement. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Now, what in the world is that about? Just quickly, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll come to learn that circumcision was an external sign for the nation of Israel that identified them as being part of the nation. And in time, this rite, this ceremony, this external symbol, it was somewhat perverted and it was redefined. And the act of circumcision ended up becoming the objective grounds for people having confidence in the fact that they knew God. Now that's not how God intended it, but that's how they perverted it. It's very similar today to the way that many people will take things in the church, for example, baptism. And they say, well, I've been baptized, so all is well with me. I've gone through the rite. I've done the thing. All is well. Everything's good with me and God because I'm supposed to be baptized, so I was baptized and everything is fine. Well, you see, that's what the people were doing as it concerned circumcision. And, and that's what's happening here. And it becomes a problem, according to the Apostle Paul. And so Paul's message in this part of the verse is to say that externals are not decisive as it concerns Christianity. The external rites and rituals, they're not decisive in knowing God. As a matter of fact, they can even be dangerous if they become the object of a person's trust. Paul did not say, I boast in my baptism. Paul said, I boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, circumcision, external things, going to church, being baptized, giving a tithe, being kind to the preacher, doing this religious act or this other religious act, it gets you no grounds with God. Paul says it means nothing. It, it gives you no credit before a holy God at all. It counts for absolutely nothing. And then right on the heels of that, again in verse number 15, Paul sets forth the corrective for those persons who have been influenced and perhaps deceived by impotent external religion and counterfeit Christianity in particular. You'll notice in the next part of verse 15, circumcision doesn't count for anything or uncircumcision. Notice this statement, but 
a new creation. What does Paul mean here? Listen, the Apostle Paul says that the thing that matters is that you have been so affected by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that you have become something that you never were before. That you're new. That you're a new man. God now is coming into your thinking. Christ is coming into your thinking. The Word of God is coming into your thinking. You're no longer pushing those things down because now they're of surpassing interest to you. Paul says it's about being a new creation. It's about being born again. It's about being regenerated. It's about having new life. It's about being transformed. It's about being delivered from one situation and brought into another situation that's absolutely changed your life and made you new. My friend, you ever been born again? The Bible says if you haven't been born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. If you haven't been born again, you don't know God. If you've never experienced the life of God in the soul of the man, I don't care how many prayers you've prayed. I don't care how many aisles you've walked. I don't care how many times you've been dunked in the waters of baptism. If you're not a new man in the Lord Jesus Christ, if the cross hasn't made you something that you weren't before, you don't know God. And the wrath of God and the condemnation of God abides upon you this very moment. You must be born again. Paul says that's what matters. Listen to me. It doesn't matter these external things. Don't you put confidence in baptism. Don't you put confidence in the fact that some preacher along the way told you to say some sinner's prayer. You know how many people have gone to hell from a church pew because they've said a sinner's prayer? They've never been born again. They've never known God. They've never experienced the life of God on the inside of the man. And so you need to think seriously tonight about your position. And you need to ask yourself the question, is my life, if I say I belong to Christianity, if I'm part of this tribe, listen, you may be here tonight and make no profession of Christianity. But maybe you're here and you do. The question you need to be thinking about is, as it concerns your religion, is it all just external? Is it all just about the rites and the forms and you you agree with facts in your mind about truths that are in the Bible? You say, oh yes, I believe Jesus was the Son of God and He died on a cross and was buried. Oh yeah, I go to church on Easter and I believe He was raised from the grave. And I've got all of that in my mind. But maybe just because you have it all in your mind and you've made a decision, so to speak, you've prayed some kind of prayer, Jesus isn't really a living, active reality in your life. He's not really a living, vibrant person in your life. Uh, Listen, for many of you here tonight, the Jesus of the Bible is still in the Bible. He's not in your life. He's right here. He remains in the book. And the only time you ever see Him or know anything about Him at all is when you open it up and you see, well, there's Jesus. And then you shut the book and you don't have anything to do with Him at any other time in your life. Why is that the case for so many people? Oh, it's because they've yet to see the cross. They've yet to see the glory of what it means to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ upon that tree. No, no, no. Paul says it's not about that. It doesn't matter about all of those externals. That doesn't count for anything. What counts is that you're a new creation. It's not the externals, my friend. It's the internals. It's what's going on on the inside. Are you, here's the simple question, are you a new man living a new life? That's what matters. That's what matters. I'll show you again that that's what matters. Look at verse number 16. 
And as for all, Paul says, who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul speaks about a rule here. What does he mean? Here's what Paul is saying. Paul says, what I've been saying to you is the truth. Here's the rule. Here's the reality. You're stumbling around out here in the darkness and all of this confusion and all of this chaos that's in the world. Paul says, look, do you want to know the facts? Do you want to know how it really is? Do you want to really know what it means to know God? Do you really want to understand? Then I have a rule for you. What I've been saying to you about the cross and about these external things not mattering and it being about being a new creation, this is the rule. This is the certainty. If you want to know that your soul is safe and that you know God and that you're not under condemnation and that you're not going to go to hell, Paul says, listen to my rule. Listen to what I've been telling you. You can be certain, my friend, of the good estate of your soul. If four things from my text tonight are true about you. Number one, concerning the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've truly seen it for what it is. And like Paul, it is your boast. Are you looking at the cross and saying, there is my salvation. There's my substitute. There's the man on the tree that took the wrath of God for me. Not, not, not that He's on the cross dying for other sinners, but you're seeing it in your mind's eye that He did that for me so that I can boast about it because it's mine. It's a possession of mine. I see it, a glory in it. It's everything. It's supreme. Another thing, another, another way that you know that your soul is sound before God is that there is actual evidence in your life that you have been delivered and severed from this world as I have been describing it to you. That this world is not where it's at for you. You don't have the same kind of affection for the world that you did in your natural condition. Oh, you see, my friend, if God is on the outs and this world is everything to you, things are not well with your soul. That's the message of Paul. Paul says, I boast in the cross because it delivered me from the world. A third thing, you can be confident about your situation if you are not trusting in or resting upon religious forms or externals for a good standing in the presence of God. My friend, if it's in your mind right now that one day when you stand before God, you're going to offer before God all of these things that you perceived about yourself that were good, you say, oh God, but look look at this good thing that I did and I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this other thing. God is going to look at all of that and He's say, none of that matters. I don't care about those external things. I don't look at men as men look at men. I look at the heart. So if you sit here tonight and you say, I'm not trusting in my baptism. I'm not trusting in walking and all. I'm not trusting in some prayer I prayed in the past. My friend, you're, you're standing on good ground if that's your position. You've renounced those things. And lastly, you can have confidence if you're a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can say about your life that you've been transformed and that you live in a new realm, in a different place than the man of the world, and your affections and your gaze are Godward. Amen. Isn't that a complete switch? You need to think about that tonight. Paul says, if this is your position, if this is where you stand then and only then are you entitled to peace and ongoing mercy from Almighty God. And it's only then that you can be confident that you're part of the people of God. 
My friend, listen, this is going to sound harsh, perhaps, cruel. I don't mean it to be. I think it's one of the most loving things I could say to you. If these four things are not true about your life, I pray that you have absolutely no peace. I pray that you live in such turmoil that you absolutely cannot stand it. That you can't sleep. That you can't eat. That you begin to wither away because everything about your life is wrong. I pray you have no peace of conscience if you're trusting in the wrong things. I pray that you'll be in a state of absolute misery as it concerns your experience until you come to the place where you can say, Oh, I finally see it. Now I can boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, then you can have peace. Not one ounce before then, my friend. I pray that will ring in your ears tonight when you pillow your head. No peace. No peace. Until you come to boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, what is your position at the present time? What is your situation tonight? Have you experienced God's great salvation in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you, are you presently boasting in the Lord Jesus? Or are you in the other camp? You're still married to the world. You're bosom buddies. You spend time with the world. You love this world of sin. Oh, my friend, you need to understand tonight, you are the object of the condemnation and the wrath of a holy God. And unless you're delivered, you'll perish along with the world at the appointed time. John chapter 3, verse 36 gives a contrast of these two positions. Listen carefully. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you boast in Jesus or you don't really have anything to do with Him? And here's a final summary of the cross of the Lord Jesus. This is what took place on that cross all those many years ago. For He, God, made Him Christ to be sin for us even though He knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You see, the cross is a trade. Listen, on the cross, Jesus takes your nasty, filthy, rotten robes. And He turns right around and He gives you His bright white robe of righteousness. So that when God looks down and sees you, He doesn't see a life of all of your sins and transgressions against God. He sees the robe of righteousness of His Son. And my friend, the Father loves the Son. And if you're in the Son and you boast in the cross, then the Father says, I welcome you. And you have eternal life. The question of the hour is, do you see that? Do you see the cross on which the Prince of Glory died? Are you boasting in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it wonderful to you tonight? If not, I pray you'll look to it. Look to that cross. Look and look and look until you look your eyes away, my friend. Because it's there and there alone that you'll find salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the message of the cross, the reality of the cross. Oh, and Father, I pray that there wouldn't be one person here tonight that's not ultimately boasting in the cross of the Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, I know these are hard things for people to hear. Oh, Lord, I know the truth cuts and it exposes us for what we are. Oh, but Lord, I pray that in the cross tonight, some sinner would see your great love for them in the giving of your Son to go to the cross. And Father, You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to send Jesus into the world. 
He didn't have to leave that heavenly abode and come down here. He didn't have to identify with us. But it was part of your plan. And out of your love and mercy for sinners, you took pity upon us, Lord, and you sent Christ into the world to do all that He did so that we could be reconciled to you. Oh, Father, we thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Lord, I pray, oh God, make the cross real to someone. Oh God, help us all to be able to say, I boast in nothing else except the cross of the Lord Jesus. And Father, then when that happens, a man can finally say, I love you because you first loved me. Lord, make it a reality in somebody's life tonight, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.